Camel, do you know what end-of-life planning is? Yep, it's uh, what I do every time I have a minor inconvenience. How Gemini of you with all the theatrics? <laughs> uh, I'm guessing that it's that sort of tying up of loose ends, uh, you know, before you move on. Um, stuff like wills, funeral prep, etc. Not bad, yeah. It's mostly the estate and legal stuff that happens when someone approaches the end of their life. Oh man, that's that's a messy job, especially when the family's arguing in front of you about like who gets the house. It's gonna be like um, we like knives out. Full respect to people in that field. <laughs> yeah, I actually met the CEO of an organization that deals with that sort of stuff through the thanatology course I took last fall. It's not always as dramatic of a process as you're making it out to be, though. And Mallory, the CEO, aims to get ahead of that situation altogether to avoid a knives out. Mm, yeah, maybe you're right about me being dramatic then. You said I was right? Did you say that again? I was right? Tell me more about the CEO. <laughs> yeah, well, her name is Mallory McGrath, and she's the founder and CEO of Vive Planning. That's V-I-I-V-E. It's an organization that works collaboratively with people and their families through the aging and end-of-life planning process. SAG? Gosh. I actually spoke with her about her work in this very episode. Way. Well done. We dive into, as you can expect, end-of-life planning and how better communication allows families to navigate the conversation around estates and the death of their loved one, which, as many of you know, I truly appreciate on a personal level. All that talking, it's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so she's like a mediator, right? Like the objective uh, middle person that helps set up the end-of-life estate stuff. This is exactly like Knives Out, right? But before we hop into it, any uh, any highlights that our listeners won't want to miss? Yeah, there's a point where we discuss how to talk to your kids about death. I won't reveal too much, but Mallory handles the topic in such a logical, understanding way. And I would say every parent, actually anyone with younger members in their family need to hear it. There's also a point where she made me realize why I really dislike telling people about my dead mom while growing up. Again, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Mallory McGrath, Vive Planning, End of Life Prep. Gotcha. Let's jump in. Mallory, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So our audience may be a little bit unfamiliar, but you have a very diverse background. So you've been a singer, a law clerk, and now you're working in aging and end-of-life planning, which is phenomenal. Yes. I love the, the range. Um, how did you get here and what made you decide to first explore this as a career option? Wow. Well, yeah. So my, my background is in music. I have a Bachelor of Music in Voice Performance from McGill University. I wanted to be a singer, you know, like so many of us out there. I had aspirations of performing on Broadway and whatnot. And I did the whole struggling artist thing for a while. Um, but I'm a very type A person and living that sort of lifestyle does not really go well with being type A. You don't know when you're going to make money. You don't know when you're going to work. You don't know if you can go to your friend's wedding next month because you might book a gig. It was not good for my health uh, in the long term. And so I made the tough choice to stop being a 
uh, aspiring to be a professional performer and move into a different, a different avenue, a different path. I was very passionate about the law and had even contemplated going to law school when I graduated from McGill, but decided not to and happened to meet a lawyer in a play. And he asked me to help him out with a trial, knowing I was a very organized person. So I helped him out and then ended up working for him for the past decade. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I started feeling very overwhelmed by the type of work we were doing. We were dealing primarily in estate litigation. And I would see these families, these families that had been perfectly happy and understanding of each other, get completely torn apart when a loved one had passed away and then there was money on the table. And a lot of times it really stemmed down to just a lack of communication, normally from a parent to the child, the adult child that is, not communicating with them what their wishes and desires are and therefore leaving these children to unfortunately battle out what they think their mom or their dad might have wanted. And I knew not being a lawyer, not being an accountant, not being a financial advisor, not being a stereotypical estate service provider of some kind, I felt very limited. But the more I spent time in the industry, the more I realized that really what's missing is a facilitator for all of these service providers and the client themselves. And also what's missing is the ability to work collaboratively with the client's family. And a lot of those core service providers I mentioned have regulatory boards that dictate how they are to work with their client and with the client's family or, or someone that they bring in. And those rules and regulations are there for a reason and are needed and I'm not diminishing them in any way. But unfortunately, what it does is it can create a lack of communication. You know, a client walks in, talks to that service provider, and then that's it. And nothing goes beyond it. And so then a lot of confusion sets into families. And so what I realized is I could find my place in this industry as being this facilitator and this collaborator with the client and their families, but also then with the client, their families, and the service providers that they need to bring their plan and path in life to the forefront. I absolutely love and adore the synchronicity of the universe, how you met the <laughs> lawyer uh, in like in a play setting, something that mm -hmm. you were trying to transition out of. And then yeah. whatever you put that manifestation to the universe and it, it happened. I, I love that. Yeah. Um, and it sounds as if, again, communication is paramount to the work that you do in this and mm -hmm. just communicating with everyone and getting the message across. Um, in a previous conversation that we had, you did actually mention three pillars that drive the work behind Vive, which are coming from a blended family, litigation law, clerk background, and your personal health stories. And in that previous conversation that me and you had, you did mention communication was a paramount one. Um, can you speak a little bit to these three pillars and how they influenced and encouraged you to do what you're doing now? Sure. I mean, I think I, I addressed the estate litigation side of things and working as a law clerk and what that was like. I'll just add that, you know, I would go home and, and try to find solutions. And I think something that I realized is once a family's at that stage, there are certain types of solutions available, but not the solution I was looking for, which was understanding and acceptance. Because I think once that notice of application is issued at Toronto Estates Court or wherever in Ontario, you, you've sometimes, not all the times, but reached a point where you're not coming back from. And that's so unfortunate. And there are some estate litigators out there, I will say, who when clients come to them, they do everything they can to make to resolve it outside of a court situation. And, and those are the great estate litigators that we at Vive try to partner with um, for when that's needed. But unfortunately, a lot of times... <sighs> 
people, we, we live in a society where suing someone, quote unquote, is easy to do. So we might as well just do it. And that isn't always the solution that we want. Um, so that was one pillar. The other would be coming from a blended family. I'm very blessed that my family, we all get along. My parents divorced when I was about seven. And I'm very grateful that my family found a way to thrive. That being said, though, being a litigation law clerk, I began to see how easy it would be for my happy blended family to not be happy anymore. We're talking about, you know, 10 adults or so, um, all with differing thoughts, all with differing opinions, all with differing life journeys. And to think that we're all just going to stay on this happy path together all the time and always agree is completely ignorant. And so as I reflected on my own life, I thought, well, there's only so much I can do But can I bring this awareness that I have to other families as well and help them? Um, And then, yeah, the third, the third pillar is definitely my own personal health journey and what that has been like. I suffer from multiple autoimmune disorders. um, And I I joke that my body is trying to kill me without my consent. And I didn't sign up for that to happen. But it's, I'm sure some doctors would wince at that analysis. But really, that's what's happening is my body is creating antibodies that are killing off, trying to kill off certain parts of it. Um, And so that has been an interesting journey through the vast majority of my adult life, um, almost like 15, 20 years now dealing with that. And really the linchpin for me from a health perspective was about a year and a half ago, I found out that I had premature ovarian insufficiency. It didn't seem like a big deal up front because I was been blessed to have a child, had only planned to have one, but and this doesn't always happen with people who have POI, but in my case, I then started exhibiting symptoms of premature menopause. And this was when I was 32 years old, I found out. I'm now 34. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's quite the roller coaster to be on. And admittedly, something that, you know, every other person in the world will go through at some point in their life, but not something you go through when you're in your prime. I mean, the prime of a woman is in her 30s, right? And so to go through an actual aging process 15, 20 years prior to when my peers will go through it causes a lot of self-reflection. I was already planning Vive when I got the diagnosis. And when I started to become very symptomatic from the uh, premature menopause, it, it caused a lot of reflection. Like, okay, so if I complete menopause by the time I'm 40, which is what the, the labs kind of show at this point in time, what is that going to be like to be done menopause, to um, no longer have a period, to be at risk for a heart disease, Alzheimer's, osteoporosis? I mean, those are the three big heavy hitters that are ahead of me. And yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done to prevent it. But bottom line, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at me having incredibly low levels and non-existent levels of some hormones like 15, 20 years earlier than I was supposed to. And so that kind of caused me to sit down and go, well, holy crap. Okay. What does that mean? Am I just aging faster than everyone? And what's it going to mean as I hit certain age milestones? And what's it going to mean for my husband, for my daughter? And I don't want to be a burden. All those things that I was seeing my baby boomer clients saying, I was saying to myself as a 34-year-old. And that really hit me. And I think that's when I really solidified the mission and the vision of Eve was by reflecting on my own own pre-aging process that I was going through. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think this also goes into the conversation around how there's just a lack of discussion about 
people and their bodies in terms of oh, autoimmune yeah. disease. Um, and it's, it's a little frustrating because I, I want to say there's more people out there that have this, that struggle with this, or that have a challenge with this, that aren't speaking out about it because of any stigma that's associated with it, which, mm-hmm. is, which is really frustrating. In terms of the work that you're doing, you mentioned that uh, within your family, you really wanted to strive in terms of being understood and supported. And it sounds as if you really focus on people being heard and seen with the work that you're doing. You want them to be heard. You want them to be seen, acknowledged, and have everyone's perspective um, brought to the forefront, uh, which is absolutely amazing. When it comes to your work, I do have a question. Walk us through what the end-of-life planning process looks like. I want to say the majority of people have no clue what it what that looks like at all. And what do people often, when you're sitting down with them and going through the process with them the first time, what do they often overlook or think never was going to be a part of it? I mean, I would say that depending who you do traditional estate planning with, the process will be different. So I I will not speak to generically how it is, but I will speak to how we do it at Vive. So I call it the aging and end-of-life process. I think that a lot of traditional estate planning can focus on end-of-life. And I think, especially with the longevity of life being what it's at right now, which I believe the average age is like 80 oh, please, I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, but 86 for men and 89 for women, which is really quite impressive if you think about it. We're not prepared for that socially, financially, economically for that to happen, for people to live that long. And so I think it's interesting to get people to talk about that and and bring in their view on it. On your website, you mentioned this intergenerational discussion about Mm how uh, because we're living so much longer, it's impacting three generations at once instead of before was one at a time. so it's, it's great that you brought that up. Um, what, what do people often overlook when right. <laughs> they are, they're going through the, the end-of-life planning process? I would say that, I mean, I'll speak to parents um, just because right now I primarily have worked with parents. So I'll speak to them. I think a lot of times when the parents have adult children, um, so children who could participate in their aging and end-of-life process in some way, whether that be that they're named as power of attorney or not, they're going to be actively helping their parents through that process. I would say a lot of times people want to find the best in their kids. And and I'm sure I do the same. I'm sure my parents do that as well. Um, And that's wonderful. I'm not saying find the evil in your children. I'm saying see the humanity in your children. See the fact that they're people with opinions, opinions you might strongly disagree with or that their sibling might strongly disagree with. You also don't know who they're going to be a month from now, six months from now, 10 years from now. Things can happen to your children that will change the way they view their life and view your life and view your end of life process. I think it's also interesting when I when I go through making an aging and end of life plan, it focuses on you know, a person's will, their power of attorney and what they want in those documents. It focuses on assets, liabilities. Um, It focuses on their health. I get them talking about how their health is, what their parents' health issues were, just so we have an idea of what might come down the pike. Um, Obviously, it's not always the case, but still. But then we really dive into family dynamics. And I think it's a, I think clients are always a little surprised when we're on that topic and they hear, especially when it's a couple and they hear their spouse describe a child. Um, and, and, you know, I had one conversation where it was a husband and wife in this case, and the husband described his relationship with one of his children. And the wife just looked at him and go, really? That's how you feel? 
Um, and she had a completely differing view. And it is interesting to see how parents, they, I mean, they always say they don't have favorites or whatever, but they gravitate towards a child. That's for sure. And children know that. They see it. They feel it. So it's interesting to have that talked about, first of all, but then second of all, written down in this document for them to see in writing, I think is a very telling thing. Um, and it helps them then to make the choices for the aging and end of life process. So if there's one child who, you know, hardly ever calls, doesn't really pay much attention to what mom and dad wants, is living their own life. Well, chances are that's not the person to name as your power of attorney. You should probably name the other kid. Um, but that doesn't mean you just name them and move on. No, you name them and you have a conversation about the choice and you find a way to talk about that with both children. Um, and, and I think that's probably the most telling conversation that, that I start with clients that I find very interesting to have is when they talk about their adult children and they recognize that things could change. You made me remember the situation where my my grandfather, I call him Papu in Greek, he uh, accidentally said I was his favorite grandchild in front of the other <laughs> grandchildren. Uh, so I, I cling to that uh, that piece of fame in the family for the past few right. years. Um, when it comes to actually speaking about death with your children, I had a conversation with my friend recently and he actually mentioned that he went over to his parents' place and he found this piece of paper that said that his mom had to do uh, heart surgery. Mm-hmm. And he brought it up to her and said, what is this? And he is very adamant and, and convinced of the fact that she would not have told him that she was right. going to get surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason that she did was because he found the piece of paper on the table. And I think that kind of goes into the conversation of parents wanting to protect their, their children, oh, um, sure. not wanting to discuss this topic. And mm-hmm. I can imagine the type of concern, the work that you're doing, um, mm-hmm. you've been, uh, you've engaged with people who are completely put off by the conversation. How mm-hmm. have you navigated um, clients and that challenge when they are completely overt to discussing it? How do you navigate that? Well, I think it takes a lot of patience. Um, and please start singing for us, right? Oh no. But a lot of patience also just from like a business standpoint, I can't be dead set in my business model all the time. I have to be very fluid and very open to changing everything I want, how I want to run a client's file. Let's say I have to be very open to the fact that if we get enough adult children and parents and loved ones in there, I'm, it just becomes more and more chaotic. And so I have to be very willing to change the way I want to do things to suit a family, still keeping my clients needs primarily involved, but also understanding that these children or the loved ones that they're bringing to the table are need to be given equal importance and also give them the, the platform to speak how they, to say how they feel about topics. Um, yeah, that's definitely something that I have to think about is making sure that everybody, uh, is given that opportunity to speak what their mind is, but also I have to be willing to give people the time to think about things. I have to, I mean, being type A, I would prefer to follow up on an email I sent every day, but that's not how everyone else in the world works. So, uh, you know, I think, oh, I'll follow up once a week. No, people don't think about it the first week. They Big, heavy conversations are overwhelming. They need more time. It's, it's reading those clients and reading who they are and how they're going to react to having those conversations with themselves, then maybe with a spouse, 
than maybe with their children or loved ones and really taking the time. So, I mean, maybe in some instances of traditional estate planning, someone could work through a file with a client in a month or two months. I'm taking much longer than that. And a lot of times it's because they need that time and that patience. It's heavy. It's not necessarily depressing, but it's very, very heavy to think about that you will get old, that you will need help, and that you could potentially be a burden to somebody else. And getting people comfortable with that word burden, I think is important because we associate it so completely negatively. Like there's no room for interpretation around that word. But, you know, you know, my mom changed my diaper, my dad did. So I'm going to have to help them when they get to that point in their life. It's just a trade. It's just a trade-off. Circle of life. Okay. Circle of life. Hakuna Matata. Exactly. Um, Exactly. When, when people, when, when would you say people should start planning, uh, their end of life, like their end of life process? When would you say like, you need to start when you hit this age or like when you hit this milestone, what would you say? Right. I mean, 18. <laughs> so I as would soon say, as they're an adult. Well, as soon as- yeah, I don't, I mean, especially given this time of COVID-19 that we're in, I feel like death has been put in our minds. There's no escaping it. And I think it's important for people to really take the time to to make that a priority thinking about it, whatever age they're at. I mean, anything can happen at any point, even throw COVID out the window for a second. You could get cancer when you're 19. Well, what do you want? What do you want from your life? You're a legal adult. Sure, your parents might stay pay your bills still, but you're an adult. You have a choice over what happens to your body. And so, yeah, when I work with younger clients, like, you know, older millennials, young Gen X sort of ages, we're planning for, they might work with a financial advisor to plan for retirement or that sort of thing from a financial standpoint, but we're talking about a premature death. That's, that's what we're discussing. And especially if there's children involved, we're, we're talking about what happens if you both die in a car crash tomorrow. Let's talk about the not just who gets guardianship of the kids, which is obviously important, but what sort of life do you want them to have? Do you want them to be able to stay in this town? Is that really important to you? Do you want them to be able to keep going to that private school? Do you want them to be able to play hockey? Do you like what what is important to you for your kids to have if you're not here to give it to them? Not just financially, but socially, but affectionately. Like going into those details is important. And I also think, setting aside parents for a second, being a single person, it's almost in some facets, more important. You don't have a direct support person with you. You and you essentially are single. Even if you're dating someone, it's different, right? It, you're still technically single in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the healthcare system. And understanding who would step in and make choices for you, I think is important. And not a lot of people know who it would be. Um, Or if you don't like who would automatically be given those powers, making the choice and setting it out in a power of attorney for property or or personal care and making sure that everyone around you knows I'm giving this, you know, basically it's 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 a gift to have this power given to you. I'm giving this gift to this person and here's the reason why. Um, So I think age doesn't matter. As, as you were talking, uh, I, I just remember this one incident with my dad where um, I think I was 11 or 10 or something. And because my mom passed away when I was two, I was just very really uncomfortable with it. And I remember going up to him and being like, dad, I need to write a will. And he was like, what? <laughs> no. And I was like, but dad, what if I die? Like, what? who's going to take my Xbox? Who's going to get my toys? Well, and he was I like, go, <laughs> go play. Just, just don't worry about it. Um, 
So it's just, it's just so interesting to hear you say like when you're 18 and then when I, I'm thinking back, I was like 10 and I was like contemplating these things. When it comes to navigating the end of life process, it can be very personal for some people, especially when you start to bring up their culture, religion, spirituality, like their upbringing and everything like that. How do you navigate those nuances from person to person? Do you have to do research or anything like that? How does that, what does that mm-hmm. look like? I mean, yes, I felt very, about a year ago, I realized I was just admittedly very, very ignorant on any culture that was not Christianity or Judaism. And so that was when I started looking into the Thanatology course that we both take. And actually, are the course we're taking next, are you taking the next one? Yes, I am. Yeah, that goes into all the different elements of religion and whatnot. I feel like that will be really great because, I mean... People come in, yes, for sure, cultures and religions play a part in their views. But if they are open to hearing how other people do things, um, then I share it. Sometimes they you know, are doing something because they think they should, because that's how they were raised, and just making sure that they have information. And I provide resources so that they can look at it at their leisure or whatnot. If they are very clear, this is what we want, then I don't, because it's not my place to question them. To think that someone would be doing the same end-of-life processes that they were doing back in like the 60s now yeah. Uh, yeah. is, uh, is uh, raises some questions, because also considering yeah. you can now turn yourself into a literal tree if you yeah. wanted to. So There's, there's just- so many... So many, so many, so many options. I, yeah, I've been diving into understanding that a bit more myself and I personally find it incredibly overwhelming. Um, I think sometimes people think that I don't feel when I feel as intensely about talking about death. When I talk about my own death, I'm just a puddle. I'm not, I'm not like sitting there resolved and happy about it. I'm oh, sobbing. Yeah. I'm thinking about dying and leaving my daughter behind. I, um, I think I'm just able to Uh, because I'm able to allow myself to think about it. I want to try to encourage other people to, because once you think about it, once you put your mind to it, 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 you're good. You've got it. You've got it set. And sure, your opinion might change as you go through life. and, and, And that's totally fine and understandable. But I think it's just, it's nice. You kind of just know this is what I'm doing. And then you share it with your spouse and they like it. I mean, my husband and I have differing views on things for sure. He does not like talking about death and having to get him to have that conversation was minimal. Um, it was short, but he got to the point and we were done. And we put on a movie and popped some popcorn and didn't have to talk about it. And we're good for now. And we'll touch base in 10 more years, right? And when the time comes, I it will hurt to lose someone or make choices, but at least it's their choice that I'm just helping them have, right? It sounds as if it's a more of like a game of um, short-term game, long-term loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you start to talk about it now, it's you're saving yourself from future situations that may arise, yeah. avoiding regret. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've spoken about end of life planning processes, what it entails, and your own personal story as to how we, you got here. We're going to take a quick break and then jump right back into it. Great. Off time break. I just want to say that Mallory seems super interesting. Isn't she? Serious question for you, though. Who's the favorite out of the family? You or your brother? Uh, Well, my brother, Aaron, just announced that he's having a baby. So right now he's the favorite. Oh, so you're soon to be third favorite is what you're telling me. Gotcha. I'm an only child, so I'm automatically favorite. I also get bonus sympathy points from extended family for the whole dead mom thing. True. But like, doesn't 
you being an only child mean that you're also like the least favorite at the same time? I am everything and nothing. Yes. So would he be the person to handle all the arrangements if something happened to your folks? Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of this estate stuff in Punjabi culture, it's quite patriarchal. So the boys, particularly the firstborn, will always be first in line to get everything. But this works for me because my brother's really sensible. He's not a moron like me. Um, Come on, give yourself more credit. <laughs> as farmers, Punjabis always tend to put uh, an emphasis on things like houses and land. Um, in particular, the land back in India, so like my ancestral home. But, um, you know, like Mallory said before, this stuff can always cause a bit of drama and a few issues. Um, we always say that if your family hasn't had a really drawn out, dramatic dispute over some land that they they visit every five years, are you even Punjabi? <laughs> I don't think what so. About, what about other arrangements? So for funeral and mourning process, this is actually somewhere where I think the, the Punjabi community and the Sikh community um, really shines. So somebody in the family who's close to the Godwara, so the Sikh place of worship, would likely take care of most of that, since me and my brother aren't all that religious, all that sort of close to the Godwara. A further disappointing your parents, I see. Yes, very good. Uh, jokes aside. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm really fortunate to have a really incredibly loving large family and community i know that they would make sure to help me and my brother preparing anything ritual visit related um and also i just don't really see me and my brother falling out over something like land or stuff like that it, we've seen it happen to too many people yeah i'm glad that you guys are like that I'm I'm so curious about Punjabi culture and rituals around death, but I feel like we can turn that into a whole episode in itself. So while we're on the subject of estate disputes, we should have a round of Died You Know trivia. Ooh, fun. We have some inheritance disputes, contested estates from Sherry Johnson of joincake.com. We'll go back and forth describing a will. And we have to guess who the will belong to out of a choice of given options. Oh, I love a bit of family drama. Family drama. So the first one, this famous singer married four times and had an estate worth over a hundred million dollars. That's a lot of money. Knowing that there would be disputes, they added a provision that if anyone contested their will, they'd be automatically disinherited. Who was it? Was it Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra, Whitney Houston, or Elvis Presley? <laughs> that, is, that is one hell of a provision to make. Uh, I'm going to go with D, Elvis. He was a bit of a hound dog like that. He may have been a hound dog, but he only married once. It was actually Frank Sinatra. Hmm. My turn. Oh, this one's actually pretty sweet. So, this famous magician asked their partner to conduct a yearly seance after they died so that they can appear and talk to them. They've even devised a secret code to ensure that there was no ghostly identity theft going on. So, 
Was it A, Val Valentino, a.k.a. the Masked Magician? B, David Blaine? C, Chris Angel? Oh, sorry. Or, or D, Harry Houdini? Did you know Chris Angel is Greek? I was, like, obsessed with him in my teens. That's what that noise was. Okay. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, his full name is... <laughs> My name is Christopher Nicolas Sarantacos. Dude, I feel like I'm obsessed with the understatement. For those who don't know, he is a magician who had his own show called Mind Freak in the early 2000s. I loved his alternative gothic style, how calm he was in interviews, and his snarky attitude. I just thought he was the coolest ever. Just hearing his name now is like throwing me back to preteen teenage Maria age and reminding me of how big of a crush I had on this dude. I'm pretty sure he's the one that inspired me to get into studded belts with little chains at the time. Okay, breathe. <laughs> breathe. I expect his name to, to come up in this. I don't... I don't think I've ever heard you so high-pitched. That was incredible. Um, here's the thing, though. He, he wasn't huge back home, but I know I showed my hairdresser a picture of him when I was like 17 I was like yeah I want this you had his hair like the style not just his locks right no 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 I had a picture <laughs> are you okay you're going you're going really red and I also had the studded belt so I am not but no okay I got flustered thinking of his haircut but you got his haircut it's fine we're good we're I did have Chris Angel's hair in style how long did your uh, interest in the alternative look last? Uh, in, the, in the alternative look? Oh, probably till I was 20. And then I really got into fishnets and black combat boots. We defo would have been a thing in our youth. We defo would have been a thing in our youth. Well, they won't they silence. <laughs> oh, that's just the... Oh, okay, never mind. Segment brought to you by a lack of Vivan, sponsored by Memory Lane. To answer the question, as much as my heart wants to say Chris, I want to say Val Valentino because he was super mysterious and I feel like that would have been his thing. Actually, it was Houdini. Now that you say that, that does make a little bit more sense. Yep. And again, emphasis on how it's actually pretty cute. Okay. Well, we did have four questions before that little trip down Memory Lane. But we've got to get into the second part of the interview. Sure. So we're going to do just one more question. Is that cool? Agreed. Okay. This famous actor's estate resulted in a legal dispute between his three children and his wife. He had left all the estate to his children with the addition Robert De Niro. of... He's still alive. Never mind. Go what? what? Why? Okay. I don't even want to know. Um, to his children with the addition that his wife would get to live in the house and the children would inherit it after her death. His will was very specific regarding his money and his house, but vague when it came to things that were in the house he shared with his wife. A bitter and expensive legal battle followed this dispute over the division of his estate. His clothes, his graphic novels, photographs, and other memorabilia caused significant disputes between each child and his wife. The matter was settled out of court in 2015. Was it Paul Newman, Keith Ledger, Robin Williams, or Alan Rickman? Harry Potter. <laughs> you know Alan Rickman? He's like, ho, ho, ho. You know, 
he's Santa? It, die Hard. She hasn't seen a lot of good films, guys. She hasn't seen him. I uh, don't know what you reference sometimes. I'm so confused. Anyways, who was it? <laughs> okay, so you mentioned graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking either Heath Ledger or uh, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Mm, I'm going to go with Robin Williams. Wow. Correct. What this example actually shows is that you need to be very, very clear and specific when it comes to the terms of your will because there are bound to be disputes over one thing or another. Yeah. It's sad to think that Robin would have created his will to prevent this sort of thing. And then that's literally what happened. Yeah. More detail and transparency goes a long way. Mallory actually talks about this in the second part of our interview. Shall we take a listen? Let's do it. Welcome back. So we spoke a bit about Vive and the work you do. I want us to dive more into how you navigate the conversation around death. So when you speak to someone and you say, yeah, I work in the death industry, what is their typical reaction? Because I know how people respond whenever I bring it up. I want to hear what they say to you and how you navigate it. Yeah, I would say that's very fresh right now. I mean, uh, people close to me knew that I was building this company, but I would say my like outer circle didn't. And when this launched in November, there was a lot of what? Like, <laughs> what is this thing you're doing? And this is, you're a singer. What? What are you doing? And everyone knew I was a law clerk, but I don't think anyone expected me to dive this far down the rabbit hole of end of life um, and understanding it. So I think that came as a shock. I mean, because of COVID, I haven't had a lot of those conversations with people because there's a small group of friends I'm staying in touch with, but beyond that, it's really just social media interactions. So nothing too huge. But I would say like, I can speak to how my family responds to things, not saying who feels what, but I think, I think it was natural for some of them to see me move in this direction um, just because of the work I had been doing previously as a litigation law clerk. But I think as I bring up certain topics, there's definitely um, like a discomfort, I guess I'll use that word around it. Like I've had to figure out the boundaries of each of my family members on the topics when they say, Oh, so how's the, how's the going? Right. They don't need me to dive into all of it. They need a very short answer. Some of them want the details. Some of them don't. And there'll be a time and a place to bring that up as I attempt to facilitate the planning of my four parents in some way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it, I think it will be interesting once we're in a post-COVID world and I'm out there um, and I become, even in my own larger circle of friends and acquaintances, become known that this is what I do. Um, I think it will be interesting to see how I suspect people avoid the conversation so that they don't have to ask me how things are going or they ask it in a way that limits my response. It all comes down to your perspective around this topic right? You can say sure. it's very morbid. You're talking about death, sad. It's, it's whatever the case is. Though in, in the same breath, someone can say, no, this is very uplifting. It reminds me of everything I can achieve, everything I'm working towards. It reminds mm-hmm. me of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And on some level, it also, when you talk about this, the subject matter, it, it provides a better sense of self-understanding, mm-hmm. uh, your own process, your own ideas, your own concepts. Um, so... I know it can be challenging for some people, though I think it's a it needs to be done at the end of the day. It and does, I yeah. I know your four parents will be coming to you <laughs> at some point to discuss this. 
I hope um, so. I hope. <laughs> yeah. I know when it comes to talking to kids about death, uh, I know my experiences are going to be a little bit different than other people's just because I, I was kind of brought up with it. I was just very mm-hmm. aware of the, the reality of the situation. I was speaking with a friend, I want to say a couple months ago, and he was telling me about a conversation he overheard his neighbor have uh, in his backyard where the, his, his neighbor's daughter said, um, uh, dad, are you and mom going to die? And the dad was like, yep. Just like full on, just completely blunt. And apparently the daughter was like, what? Like, does that mean I'm going to die? And he said his, her sister's name and the dad was like, yep, you're going to die. I'm going to die. Your mom's going to die. Everyone's going to die at some point. <laughs> And apparently I asked my friend, how did the kid respond? And her response was like, huh, okay. Like she was just very like, it is what it is. And I think that's how just kids process things. It's a matter mm-hmm. of fact. Mm-hmm. And I, I know in a previous conversation you had mentioned, you actually had to have this discussion with, with your child, mm-hmm. um, your daughter. And considering how unfamiliar people are with this topic or uncomfortable they feel with it, can you explain how you felt in that conversation with your daughter and any advice or suggestions you can give other parents when speaking to kids about that? Sure. I mean, I don't, uh, in terms of giving advice, I don't know if I would do that. I'm sure there are many psychologists out there with views on the topic. I, I don't mind speaking about how I handled it though, personally. So yeah, I mean, I mean, even if kids watch Disney movies, they see death, like their death is there. Um, and my daughter is almost Can I just five. say the Lion King? Yeah. Oh yeah. Death yeah. is everywhere. <laughs> so my daughter is a Frozen fan. Um, and in the first movie, we know the parents die. Well, the boat disappears. So whatever you pull from that as a child is interesting. But then when Frozen 2 came out, which came out prior to COVID isolation, we went to the movie theater and saw it. I'm sobbing uncontrollably through like the movie. And there's a particular moment in Frozen 2 where they, sorry if this is a spoiler for people, but where they find the ship that their parents went down on and Elsa's able to use her magic to like create the last memory that her parents had. And you see them holding each other. And I assume as the ship is going down and they realize they're going to die. Um, and after we saw it in the theater, my daughter didn't say anything. And also, oh yeah, Olaf dies. Like Olaf dies, but then comes back to life because of magic. So anyways, but she doesn't say anything about the death that doesn't come up. And then once it comes out on video, we obviously watched it a thousand times. And there was one day where she said, so Anna and Elsa grew up without a mommy and daddy. And I said, yeah, yeah. Part of their growing up, they were without their mommy and daddy. And she said, Oh, who took care of them? And I said, well, um, I don't know. Like they were, they were princesses. So they probably had like a staff. I don't, I don't really know exactly. And she said, well, what would happen if you and daddy died? And I said, well, and I told her who uh, we had actually named as her guardian. I said, this person is going to take care of you. And she said, oh, okay. Well, I don't want that to happen. And I said, no, I don't want it to happen either. And then that was it. But then about a month or so ago, I don't know what triggered it. And it could be that she just, I mean, I don't talk about death at the dinner table. I'm not doing that. But children are highly perceptive. And so she must hear me saying things. She, you know, we were working from home during isolation. There's no way she didn't hear things being said, you know, even if she's walking past the bedroom where there's a closed door and I'm on a call, she hears things and it's there in front of her. And she understands that Vive helps, um, because we had to figure out a way to just keep it precise. Vive helps older people 
get older, get even older, and then helps them when they pass away. So she understands that. Whether she grasps the magnitude, obviously, probably not. But she does get, she mostly just says, Mummy has a company that helps old people. So that's fine. Although obviously I help any age. Um, but yeah, recently she said to me, she asked me straight out, are you going to die soon? And I said, well, the word soon was the very heavy word, right? And, and I said, well, I mean, I don't know. I really hope not. And she said, well, I don't want you to die ever. And I said, that's a great feeling to have, not wanting me to die ever. That's great. I don't want you to die ever. That, that is a true feeling that both of us have about each other. And I said, but it is going to happen. And I said, and I hope that it happens so, 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 so long from now for all of us, that it's super long from now. Um, and she said, well, there's something we can do to make sure it's very long from now. And, you know, I use this as a parenting moment to plug eating vegetables and whatever, but, you know, like taking care of yourself. I said, you have to keep your body healthy if you want it to live a long time. And she said, well, Anna and Elsa's mommy and daddy were very healthy and they still died. And I said, right. And that's an accident. So accidents can happen. And so, you know, she, she leaned into me and this was the, the, you know, every moment that parents are going to lose it. Right. She leaned into me and looked up at me with those annoyingly large, big blue eyes and said, I promise I would never forget you if you died. And it's just like, like, you know, a lot of times we talk down to children. I don't mean in a rude way. I mean, because of their intellect being lower, we talk down to them. We make things simpler for them, which is needed. But their perception of emotion sometimes is really amazing. The fact that, you know, and she does bring it up still, I think, because it's in her mind. And so maybe for a child her age, she's being subjected to it a little bit more than her peers. And it sometimes is emotional and upsetting for her when she brings it up. And I'm honest with her about it. But at the same time, my hope, my belief as well, is that it will prepare her later in life. I was not subjected to death at all. The first death I really experienced, I was like 20 when my grandpa died. So I really had no understanding of how I would feel, how I would see other people react to it. And since then I have lost some grandparents, but I am, and I don't diminish the the death of grandparents in any way, but I think like, I think that when you either lose a child, a sibling or a parent, it's a, it's a different, it's a different level. And so for me, sometimes I feel ignorant because I, I don't know that intense, intense grief that can come. You know, and I always end the conversations with, you know what, we need to just love each other and have lots of fun and, you know, learn lots and do our work and do this. And like, I try to like pull on all the joyous and positive elements of life and remind her that's where our focus needs to be. We know in the back of our mind, yes, that something bad can happen and, and it could happen that one of us died prematurely. But let's put our focus here on living this totally awesome life. That's what I always say. Let's be totally awesome and have lots of fun. And, and, and then that usually seems to help her through it. But it's there. And I think unless we're forced to talk about it, we don't. It's going to be also very interesting to see how this generation grows up and their thoughts and their opinions around death and how they navigate it oh, um, sure. in mm. 10, 20, 30 years from now. Because I know growing up... Uh, 
being a six-year-old when a 30-year-old person would ask like, hey, what do your parents do? And my response would be like, oh yeah, my mom is dead. Seeing their response yes. and being like, what is going on with this morbid <laughs> six-year-old? Uh, but the reality of the situation is I, I was just honest and I, I had to learn or I had to navigate that in a sense of like, oh, this is bad to talk about. This is not, mm-hmm. this is not a dinner uh, conversation that is meant to be had. Um, it's going to well, be very interesting. Time, sorry ahead. to interject. A lot of times you're, the fact that you can say that, oh, my mom is dead. Like when you said that to me, when we first met, I, I, it's not like I didn't have emotion about it, but I didn't feel shock. I just went, oh, her mom is dead. That's incredibly sad. And then we moved on with the conversation. It wasn't, oh my God. Oh, oh God. Like, because, well, you, you could say it that confidently. So you don't need to handle my reaction. I think that's a big thing. I have a friend who has just gone into remission from breast cancer and she didn't tell a lot of people when she was diagnosed because she's like, I don't want to handle their emotions. I don't need to deal with them. I've got enough on my plate. It's a lot. It is a lot. And I think the same goes with conversations about death is that, And even when I talk about my health problems with people, they don't know how to handle it. And I end up handling them and what they're feeling. And that's not support, right? That's not the best way to do it. So my hope is also that I'm able to impart on my daughter a level of empathy that other people in her peer group won't have because conversations like this aren't happening with her just so that she understands, yes, death is sad. It is not always traumatic. Sometimes it is for sure, but... It's, it's sad and it's something we're all going to have to learn how to do, learn how to grieve and learn how to also prepare for our own end of life. Yeah. Uh, and to your comment about just you having to manage someone else's emotions yeah. in conversation, I kind of realized why also growing up, I was so uh, adverse, I want to say, to having that discussion because it would be the thought process of, oh man, are they going to get emotional about this? Are they going to feel bad for me? Am I going to have to explain? No, I'm fine. Like it's been like 20 years. I'm good. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, so yeah, just that managing of of other people's, uh, feelings and emotions is Mm -hmm. a whole other conversation Exactly Um, about managing your own uh, end of life process. I have a question now. Mm. Have you started your own aging and end of life planning? If you're comfortable to answer. Yeah. Yes. So, um, from a traditional standpoint, I have a will and power of attorney. I've even recently, as I've been diving into learning more about legacy preservation, like in terms of, um, you know, recording a video to give to my daughter, if I were to prematurely pass away, things like that, I've been learning about it so that I have resources available for clients. And for me, I've been like, Oh man, I should probably like do some of this myself, but it's very hard to do. Like the idea of sitting down, Oh man. And writing a letter to my daughter, um, knowing I'm not there, knowing I'm missing seeing her graduate from high school, graduate from university or college or whatever, get married, have a baby. That's Oh yeah. Like I don't want to think about it. I'm not ignorant that people don't want to, cause I definitely don't want to, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is something that's smart to do. Ask me in a year if I've done it. Hopefully I can with, with everything that I spout at my clients, hopefully I take the advice and do it myself. I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to ask okay. you in a year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. 
there's um there's a few startups actually that are working within like I guess it's death tech space as bizarre mm-hmm. as that word or yeah, phrase is to say. Um, and I remember there was an episode of Black Mirror. Are you familiar with the series by any chance? No. Mm-mm. There's an episode, and now it's kind of turned into a reality where you can actually upload a image or video recordings of someone who's passed away, and you can have a full on conversation with them via Skype or via like a, a video messaging app. Yeah, it's very very bizarre when you think about it. That's, um, that's very, that's, that one takes everything a bit step further. Yeah. Like yeah, where that, the, is that going? That, that blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to learn more about that. I think to find my comfort level on that. Oh. I know there's ones where you can record videos. Um, there's a company and I'm forgetting the name because I just found out about it. A company based out of, I believe it's Australia or New Zealand where the person can record videos that get stored on their hard drive or their, their you know, wherever they keep them. And then actually gets sent to the designated person on a certain day. So like, I believe in their like marketing material, it's this boy who loses his grandpa. And then like a couple of years later, this video arrives in his email and it's his grandpa saying something to him and he can see the younger version of himself in the background. Like the grandpa records it while he was there. It was really good marketing material. It was really beautiful. Oh and, and yeah, like that's, that's an interesting thought as well. I think it's also knowing your, shall we say your audience, right? Like as a person who's recording it, is that going to freak someone out when they get it? Or is it going to mean something? And it's knowing how that would work, right? I think I would respond better to written word personally, if I got something from someone who had passed, whereas a video, I think would kind of blow my mind. Um, but then again, I, I don't know, who knows? Once you've gone through the grieving process, yeah, you might feel different, right? I, I can think of a few people that I know who would absolutely lean into the idea of freaking someone out, uh, <laughs> well, <that> knowingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my last question for you is, it kind of revolves around legacy preservation. How, how do you want to be remembered? Hmm. It's such a, it's such a great question. It's one I ask clients all the time. Um, I want to be remembered as being thoughtful. I'm that person who, when a friend mentions that they're, I don't know, having an ultrasound done next week, I like write it down so that I remember and I message them. That's the, I, I try to be that person. Also, just in terms of Vive, I, I, you know, I hope that we at Vive have an impact on, on people's lives and help this, this generation. You know, I, I'll use the baby boomers as an example because they, of the age bracket they're at, but to be able to help that generation age well, and the Gen X millennial children of theirs help them through it. Like for us to be able to help facilitate that, to reduce the amount of unneeded estate litigation that happens, that would be such a wonderful legacy to have. And then obviously, I mean, the biggest legacy I will leave behind is my child. She is just this vivacious blonde ball of energy um, that, um, and I always reference her as being blonde because I'm not for people that don't see me. <laughs> I was just about so, to say. Yeah, she just, just, so just gets reference. it from the other side of the family, but she's just, oh, she just has so much life in her as, as all children do. And obviously I'm a little bit biased and partial to her. Um, but knowing that I'm leaving behind just another kind, thoughtful human being, knowing that I was able to impart that on her and help her to become the person that she wants to be, leaving behind her as my legacy, obviously will be the greatest gift for me. Amazing. And I, I, the short amount of time that we've known each other, I can, I can say a testament that you are very thoughtful and helpful. (laughs) And I know she's, she's getting that from you. Well, I hope Um, so. I, I have, 
an exercise that I do every day, um, even on the shitty days where it's just mm-hmm. like, what's one thing you're grateful for? Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to say today, I'm very grateful that you spoke with me. So thank you for sharing. Oh, well, thank you. you. Well, I'm very grateful to talk about this topic with you and I'm very excited to see all the other guests that come out and speak with you. I think this is a much needed podcast and a needed topic for people to uh, have a listen to on their lovely outdoor walks in 2021. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, that last question was a little heavy, wasn't it? It's a good question. Everyone gets asked that question in the season. I think it gives time for personal reflection. No, it's good. It's just still pretty heavy. On a lighter topic, she did bring up uh, Death in Disney Movies, which we are covering in this season. Yeah, we are. Get ready, listeners. All of your repressed childhood movie traumas are coming back. It's such a great topic because we think that kids aren't exposed to death because we don't talk to them about it. But they are. It's just Walt Disney talking to them about it. Also, way to spoil Mm -hmm. Frozen for those of us who haven't watched it. Oh, let it go. We'll add spoilers in the show notes. What part of the conversation did you really like? The fact that she explained how to have this discussion with her kid was really insightful, actually. Children are perceptive and um, being transparent with them is really important. And once you've got that awkward conversation out of the way, you can actually focus on the, you know, the awesomeness that you have in life freely and happily with your kid. I feel lucky my life. Uh, she said it, guys. Because kids do have questions. And to your point about kids and death, adults do really shy away from it. And that's obviously why we're sat here talking. Media just raises kids as much as parents do. Yeah, there was actually a study in, I think, 2005 that looked at the content of TV programming. And it found that two-thirds of storylines on the TV guide involved death or dying. So kids are being exposed to it, whether we want to think so or not. It's either through Disney movies or CSI. Mm. And I think we mentioned this before. Death in real life is very different to how death is portrayed in the media. So people who are stabbed or shot don't just die or fall over right away. It's never that clean. Um, Media just distorts that reality. What about you? What stuck out to you about your conversation? I don't know if you or the audience could tell, but my mind was really blown away when we spoke about handling other people's emotions as it comes to speaking about death. Growing up, I know there were moments I didn't tell people because I didn't want it to get awkward for those people or because I thought they'd be insensitive about it towards me. This conversation with Mallory actually really made me realize that it had little to do with other people. It more had to do with me. I didn't want to handle other people's emotions. What do you mean when you say that? you didn't want to have to handle other people's emotions. Yeah, it it just felt like I had to constantly reassure people that, like, I was okay. And they would start to get upset. And I would have to say, no, like, it's fine. Like, I'm good. Especially as a teen when telling other teens or having to handle their shock, their grief, their sadness, which would just make me think that there was something wrong with me. Like, I was bad in a sense. Or it amplified my own emotions when I initially had them in check. Like I was totally fine. And then having to deal with someone who would start to go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. It would put me down a headspace where I was not down for. Well, well, I mean, why should you have to be, right? It's not your fault that other people aren't taught how to talk about these things. So 
Yeah, I carry the weight of the world on my shoulders, Emma. Just like Atlas, the Greek titan. You know me so well. <laughs> uh, final question. What is Swedish death cleaning? And why haven't a metal band taken that as their name? <laughs> you can, you can uh, be the first one to do it. It's basically Marie Kondoing your life once you hit middle age. We could do an entire episode on this too. Hmm. Sparking joy into your life right before you die. Sweet. We'll put a bit of an explainer in the show notes for the listeners for that one. Excellent. On that note, this wraps up this episode of Philodema Life. Listeners, what were your thoughts on this episode? What did you learn? What do you wish you learned? Let us know. And don't forget to follow us on social at Philotimo Life. P-H-I-L-O-T-I-M-O-L-I-F-E. 